This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay. Welcome, everybody. Literally, welcome, everybody. What a welcoming class we are. Tonight, we are learning Le'ilu Nishmat Avram ben Chaim Yehuda and Yechezkel ben Avraham. So, the, the topic that we're speaking about tonight, again, we're continuing on the money series. Uh, money, 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 money. That's, that's what it's all about. And it's interesting because when I was preparing the class, I was looking into, you know, the, we know that on the, on the U.S. currency, it says, in God we trust. So at first I was like, wait, maybe it's only on the dollar. So I started looking at other currencies, and, and I believe it's on coins also. I'm trying to say, I didn't even check coins, but I believe it's on coins also, um, in God we trust. I have here an old nickel that I just were able to find. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not on coins. On, oh, yeah, it is. On coins also. On all U.S. currency, what it appears to be an all U.S. currency, on anything from a dollar to a five, a ten, twenty, a hundred, it says on the back of the currency, it says, in God we trust. And, in fact, there were a, um, a, a atheistic cause, if there is such a thing, if we could say that they have a cause, that they came and they hired a lawyer that wanted to go and remove the words, in God we trust, behind U.S. currency. They didn't want it over there. It says it, it, it impeaches on our religion. I don't know if they have it, whatever it is. It impeaches on something. They're not happy with it. It makes them depressed. Whatever it is, they wanted to go and have that removed. The Supreme Court rejected it and said, no, we're keeping in God uh, we trust, which I'm wondering if uh, the U.S. became a very big superpower and I believe this came into the currency in the middle of the 1800s, went out, went bit in again, I think, in the 1900s. I'm wondering how, you know, like, there's definitely a power to this. There's a spiritual factor to it that you have on your money, on your currency, and what talks that it says in God we trust, it's definitely helping them for something. I, I would assume so, in the spiritual realm. But when we think about it, in our money it says in God we trust. But when you speak to people and when you, you know, when you deal with people that have money, is it that they, it says on their money in God we trust or in their mind they trust in the money? Meaning that it says in God we trust on the money. But when you're really thinking about it, on when you're really, you're trusting in what? You're trusting in your money. So the question is, where do you hold your trust? Is your trust is on your money or is your trust on God, on Hashem? So... Today we're going to be speaking about the, when one goes and relies on their money. The Chobos Avavos goes and says, and Shara Bitachon goes and says that if one person relies on his wealth, what will happen? It will be removed from him and left to somebody else. Now again, there are always other situations. I'm generalizing. I'm blah, 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 blah. Whatever it is that you want to say, fine, enjoy it. But we're dealing about a certain concept over here and we're going to generalize in certain areas. And anything that we're speaking tonight, when we're generalizing, there's always something that goes out of that generalization. There's always something, in the Hebrew you know, terminology is that there's always something goes semina cloud. There's always something that goes out of the general categorization. So the Chobos of Abbas goes and says, if somebody goes and relies on their wealth, it will be removed from them. And I want to share with you a few things from the Chovos of Avos, and then we're going to go and try to analyze and break it down the way that we try to usually do, and try to get a deeper, a more well-rounded understanding of what the Chovos of Avos is trying to teach us. That's number one. Number two, the Chovos of Avos goes also says that what will happen if somebody relies on their wealth, or relies on their money, that will, they will be prevented 
from its benefit. As it says in the Pasuk in Kohelet, chapter 6, verse 2, And God will not give him the ability to eat from it. Meaning that you'll have somebody that has a lot of money, but he won't have the ability to enjoy it. And it could be, the, says the Chavos of Olives, that it'll be like, it's sort of somebody who has a lot of money, and it'll, it's like a deposit. And he's holding it, he's guarding it, and he's preventing other people from taking it. But what, for what purpose? Not that he will actually enjoy it, but he would eventually, or she would eventually give it to somebody else. That's number two. Number three, the Chavos of Olives goes and says, that it's possible that the money will actually be the cause of the destruction in this world, and also his ultimate downfall in the afterlife. Meaning that sometimes we think that money is, uh, you know, is a blessing. And in many times it is. But in sometimes it could be even a curse that not only that it's a curse in the next world, but also a curse in this world. And then Matas Chalka goes and explains, and it says that, explains on this, uh, you know, on this, on this topic, on, the, on what the Chobos HaVavah says in this introduction, that, you know, in times when, when people don't have money, they think that money will solve all their problems. And once money's going to come, then I'm not going to have any issues, and then I can be the best person, the best me, and whatever it is that your personal therapist has told you that you could be, you are, and your mother, and you're going to be the best that you can be, and you will be an advertisement for Nike. Whatever it is that you think that you're going to be, because money is going to solve all your problems. But says the Ma'nas Chalko, there are times that what happened, that, that this is what people think, and they think that the, the wealthy, they don't have any, anything, any concerns on their head. But it's really the opposite, that many times what happens is that the people that have tremendous amount of money, they have constant worries on their head. And in certain parts in the world, not to be named for whatever reason, I decided not to name them, that people that have money have to keep their, they, they have to have bodyguards. Why? Because they're afraid that their children are going to get kidnapped. You understand the worry that they have? Besides the worry that when you have more more uh, wealth, more property, more things that you have, the more that you have to worry about. I'll give you an example. Somebody's going and renting a simple apartment in whichever town that you are right now. And that's where they're renting the apartment. And then they decide they're going to buy a nice, big, beautiful property. So they think, okay, fine. Now I finally have a property. Now I can be relaxed. It's just the opposite. Now you have to worry about all your neighbors. Now you have to worry about your taxes. Now you have to worry about your land. Now you have to worry about your house. Now you have to worry about your plumbing. Now you have to worry about your electric. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And then you're going to worry about what are you going to update? What are you going to do? So when you think about it, when you have more stuff, you think that's when I'm going to be more relaxed. Really, in many times, it's just the opposite. The more that you have, the more worries that you have. So it's not really an answer to your uh, problem. So... In summary, we want to focus on three things the Chobos of Alva says. There's really four things if we add the Matnas Chalka, but we really want to focus on what the Chobos of Alva says. And this is what we're going to break it down. Number one, that if a person relies on their wealth, it will be left to somebody else. Number two, if a person relies on their wealth, they will prevent it from, be, from having any benefit from it. And number three, what the Chobos of Alva says, that it's possible that the money will actually be the cause of their downfall, their destruction. So let's look at, at number one. Number one is that if a person relies on their wealth, it will be removed from them and given to somebody else. And I was thinking about whether to mention names or not. On we're going to be speaking about you know people and to mention names or not. And I don't know. I I I I've been going back and forth. And the reason why I've been going back and forth is that in the aspect of Lashon Hara, this is something that's been in the news and everybody's well aware of it, but we will still refrain from using uh, using names. At least we'll, we'll prevent from using last names. So I'll give you the names of the 
first, what, whatever it is. Uh, I don't know if somebody, you know, so curious that they're going to do the research. But if you do the research, you do the research. But I'll tell you the names that we're going to be speaking about. So there was a person by the name of Ike. And this guy, Ike, was known uh, about 12 or so years ago as one of the richest people in Brazil. And they were, uh, at that point, he, was, he had a net worth of about $35 billion. And in 2010, he did an interview. And in the interview, he himself predicted, got a little bit in his head, just a little bit, and he predicted that within 10 years, he will have a net worth of more than $100 billion, and he will be the richest person in the world. Now imagine that interview where he'll go and be like, yeah, don't worry, now I'm worth $35 billion, but in 10 years, I'm going to be the richest person in the world with a net worth of $100 billion. Little did he know, back then it sounded $100 billion. Nobody had $100 billion back then, uh, legally at least, that you know, was known. I don't know if we're speaking about uh, Saddam Hussein and, and uh, whatever, certain Russians that should or should not be named. But for the net worth that is in the legal aspect, $100, $100 billion, who has $100 billion? Little did he know, and little did, I don't think anybody knew in how, let's say, for example, you know, Amazon, you know, the founder and the owner, Jeff Bezos, how he would be worth, you know, over like $200 billion or wherever he's, he's holding right now, you would never even think about it because you realize if you think, if you follow through the wealth, you had, let's say, um, Bill Gates. That after I started, he was, you know, obviously raising, raising his wealth, but he was, you know, in the 50 billion and the 60 billion and the 70 billion. Nowhere did you have such a tremendous jump of all of a sudden to two, almost $200 billion. But in any ways, he thought that he would be the richest person with over $100 billion. Little bit, even if he would have had $100 billion, he still would have been the richest person. But let's put that on the side. Let's fast forward 10 years, 2010 to 2020, or let's even speak about now, 2021. This Ike is not worth $100 billion now. And in fact, he's not worth $50 billion now. In fact, he's not even worth the $35 billion that he was worth 10 years ago when he said he would be the richest person in the world and be worth well over $100 billion. The truth of the matter is, he's not even worth $100 million. Let's take this a step further. He's not even worth a dollar. And no, that's not because he's not alive. He's alive. He's not worth even a dollar. Let's, let's try to, to uh, you know, understand this, this story. He was living in Germany way back when he was a little kid or in college. And he heard about, he read this article about this gold rush in Brazil. He was brought up in Brazil, and he read this gold rush. So he dropped out of school. He went, moved back to Brazil, and he borrowed some money to get in on the gold rush. And he happened to be successful in the beginning. At, you know, he kept on buying more companies. He kept on opening up more businesses. When he was at his peak, he owned five oil and natural gas companies. And this is where he, became, he really became a billionaire. He became, his value at 2010 was $35 billion. Two years go by, in August of 2012, the commodities market peaked, and over the next year, his largest oil company has declined, has decreased in its production by 87%. And his oil company was producing 750,000 barrels of oil each day. It went down to 15,000. By August 2013, so just a shy Three and a half years after his uh, very, very flamboyant, I guess, uh, statement that he would be the richest man in the world from being 35 billion, in three and a half years, it went down from 35 billion to 200 million. 
That's how much his, his net worth went down. Fast forward another four years. On July 3rd, 2017, he was convicted of bribing a certain officer, and he ended up being convicted to serve 30 years in prison. And if you look at him now, I didn't give you his name, but, you know, for whatever reasons, I didn't give you a name, but if you look at him now, then his net worth is, any, is, is roughly about negative $1 billion. So he thought he was on path to become the richest person in the world. He became on path to you know, something in, uh, you know, in the history books, but that's not for making the most money, but it's probably for the losing the most money. Because when somebody goes and somebody is so confident and you trust just on his money and saying, I am going to make it. I am going to be a billionaire. I don't know what the chashbainis was in Shemayim, but Hashem says, really? <laughs> really, you're going to be a billionaire? Not only are you not going to have what you think that you have now, you're going to owe more than what you think that you'll ever have. Like he ended up owing so much money and he's not only that, he's not even able to enjoy it. He's sitting in prison, unfortunately. There is an Irish property developer who was the wealthiest person, the richest man in Ireland. And he had a net worth of $6 billion. Within a few short years, he went bankrupt. And, uh, you know, and, and if you look at him nowadays, uh, his first name is Sean, he is worth uh, about $100,000. He went from, six, you know what it is from, from having $6 billion? When you have, when you, you're a millionaire, that's nice. But once you become a billionaire, that's when you're like, all right, I don't have to worry. Let's take it a step further. My kids don't have to worry. But you know what? That's when you have $100 million. When you have a billion dollars, you're like, my grandkids don't have to worry. And I'm not saying don't have to worry because they're able to rent an apartment. They don't have to worry because they can buy beautiful houses, plural, have, don't have to work a day in their life and just live off the interest. They are able, and not only that, when you're getting over $10 billion, you're talking about great, great grandkids. You think you have no worries in life and not forget about God. What do we need God for? And God we trust. In our billions we trust. This is what we have. We don't need to focus on anything else. But unfortunately, we see that there are certain you know, cases that people really lost their money. Really, And yeah, yes, there's always going to be people that then never lose their money and only get any more. And yeah, I'm not saying... And really, like the, the, one of the reasons why I didn't want to mention names is that I, I don't... I have a, it's sort of like, I don't know if you call it a pet peeve. I, I really don't like... There are people that go and they like reading celebrity Lushan Hara gossip or whatever it is, like... Forget about like the good stuff that celebrities have, but let's look at the bad stuff. So you look about like this person got divorced, this person is now in bankruptcy, this person is in debt for $50 million, and it, this is how you make yourself feel good about it. And I'm like, I, th- that's not something that sits well with me. I'm like, why? If somebody's wealthy, let them be wealthy. Why do you care so much? Why does it make you, f- it shouldn't make you feel good or better the fact that this person is suffering, that they were so high and now they're so low. And yes, you have Rishayim, you have wicked people and this and that. You can give me every excuse under the sun. But if so, whatever it is, you know, like God has the ability to make everybody a billionaire. There's no, you know, like why do we have to go and feel good when people lose money? Why do we have to go and read this nonsense or listen to this nonsense type of news where, oh, this person now is divorced, this person now doesn't have any money, this person now is running away from the police, and now, okay, so my life doesn't feel so bad. Like, yes, there is a certain nechama, there is a certain consolation when you're thinking about this, but this, this really shouldn't be your goal of how, like, why? Why do you have to raise yourself up on other people's suffering? So that's one, that, that is one of the reasons I didn't want to say the names, even though it's public knowledge and it's very easily, you, can, you know, just Google it and find out everything that I'm saying. 
But it's, it's something that, that even though we're using these as an example, that people trusted in the money, they lost it, it's still, it's still not, not something like, oh, you can see that you know, not everybody can keep their money. No, that, that's not really the goal of the focus of what we're dealing with over here. The goal of the focus that we're dealing with is like, yes, you know, if you have money, amazing. And may Hashem bless you that you should be able to keep it and you should do good things with your money. But if you trust in your money, that's where we're dealing with. And by the way, this, has, this, this class is not only for people who have a tremendous amount of money. It doesn't matter. You have a dollar in your bank or you have a billion dollars in your bank. The same trust that you have in the money goes, uh, it, you know, applies to any situation. There was a woman who spent her entire career saving for retirement. And... She ended up investing, and she was very successful in her, in her career, and she ended up investing millions and millions of dollars. And she relied on her broker. Her broker said, invest in this, and invest in this, invest in that, whatever. She did this one, invest in. Throughout the years, she saved millions and millions of dollars, and then she retired. And she was living. She had plenty to live off. And she took a yearly vacation. When I say a yearly vacation, it doesn't mean that she flew coach to Miami, and uh, you know, she sat over there and she, you know, tried to, you know, figure something out on credit card points and how to, you know, like that's not the vacations that, that she took. In fact, she called her um, her broker one time, her banker, and she's like, she had two options. She was either going to go on her yearly vacation. She was going to go to the Fiji Island, which would cost her roughly about fifty thousand dollars for a vacation. Or the other option was to go to Bahamas, but go like someone, you know, like. Not like somebody that goes on points. Let's just say, not that anything is against it. By flying by points, by all means, use your points. But, you know, she was going to spend only twenty grand, Only $20,000. So she wanted to know which one the broker recommended. Either the $50,000 vacation in Fiji or the $20,000 vacation in the Bahamas. I guess what she was asking is like, how's my investments doing? So the broker says, he's like, listen, you know, like, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you know, I've been making phone calls to all my uh, clients, but... Uh, you can't go to any of them. She's like, what do you mean I can't go to anyone? No, 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 I have an option. I can book it anytime I want. Like, I can book it right. He's like, no, you don't understand. It's like, you, you, you financially can't go. She's like, what are you talking about? I have so much in savings. Like, I, of course I financially could. I do this every single year. And she's like, you know, he goes over there. He's like, ma'am, he's like, you can't even fly coach to Miami and book a point. He's like, you can't even do that. She's like, what are you talking about? And he goes over and he says, you know, we invested the money into a certain person, let's just call him Bernie, and um, this, you know, unfortunately, they, uh, it was a Ponzi scheme, and uh, you lost every single penny that you had saved, it's, it's gone, and at this point, she hears that, she's like, she's not only can't go on vacation, he goes and tells her a step further, she's like, he goes over there and says, you know, you can't even afford the apartment that you have, she was living at that point in Park Avenue, and Manhattan, she says, you can't even afford that. She ended up, and the story goes on, this is, um, Rabbi Rubenstein brings down the story, says she, she ended up hiring herself out as a maid. This is somebody who had saved millions of dollars, lost it all, lost it all, all gone. The lesson that we see over here is that, that no one ever knows what will be with his or her money. We, we don't know. We hope that it will stay with us and we'll hope that it will grow with us and it, and it should, you know, just keep on blessing to come one after another. But we really don't know. We really don't know. There was, uh, and, and it could come from such an unexpected area. There was a person that invested a lot in a certain currency. And I don't know if the government collapsed, whatever it was, 
the, the, the government had to change currencies. And everything that he had saved was all in a certain currency. He went from being a billionaire to being penniless overnight. The paper was worth the fire thing that he was able to start his firewood. The, there are so many people that they think that they have made it, and their children has made it, and everything has made it, but they're, where they're holding the security, the security is in their money. They're living not in God we trust, they're living in the dollar we trust, in our investments we trust, in our bank account, that's what we trust. So that's what the Chobos of Abbas goes and tells us, that if anybody thinks that your security, your money, you're not living in reality. If you rely on your wealth, if you rely on your bank account, if you rely on your investments, then unfortunately what could happen, says the Chobos of Abbas, that that could be removed from you. It could be taken away from you. That's the first thing that the Chobos of Abbas says. The second thing says is that the person that if you rely on your wealth, you will be prevented from its benefit. As in the Pasuk says in Kohelet that we said, That God will not allow him even the ability to eat from it. One of the richest people, Rabbi Rubenstein brings down this example, before Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and all the, you know, Elon Musk, was a person by the name of Howard Hughes. He was an investor. He died in, the, the, in April 5th, 1976. He was an investor, a pilot, engineer, film director, philanthropist. You know, he was able to put his hands in a lot of places. And he lived a very, very grandiose uh, lifestyle. And then something happened. Something clicked in his mind, and he became afraid of germs. He came like, like to the point that he was OCD. He became, you know, this, this obsessive-compulsive disorder. And his life, when you look at it, most of his life he spent working very, very hard as a workaholic. He, and then finally, when he wanted to stop and enjoy his money, he became so scared, so OCD of germs that he couldn't even enjoy it. He had a special room that people were not allowed to even enter the room unless they were sanitized. And he only ate specific food that was organic. At the end of the day, he had so much money, but he wasn't able to enjoy it. With all his wealth, he had all these fears and phobias that the germs would get him, that he, he ended up unfortunately passing away and dying as a very poor and broken person. He did not enjoy his money. Let's look at an example. This person will say his name. Um, for obvious reasons. Uh, his name was uh, Saddam. Maybe I don't have to say his last name. Um, uh, but uh, his last name was Hussein. I'm sure you've heard of him if you've been alive in the past you know, 15 years or so. But this person by the name of Saddam Hussein, he was worth billions of dollars. Again, one of those people, like let's say certain Russians, that no one really knows how much they're worth. But he was worth a lot of money, Saddam Hussein. In Operation Red Dawn, the American uh, military operation that they conducted on the 13th of December of 2003 in a uh, town of, uh, in Iraq, uh, I think it was Ad-Dawir, I'm for sure I'm, I'm not pronouncing the name right. Uh, but anyways, they, they, they captured him, they, they caught him. And where was he living? He was, he was worth billions of dollars. Speaking about not being able to enjoy your money, he was living in dirt and disease. You know what he was called? He was called the Lord of the Flies. He was eating out of tuna cans. There are people that are on Section 8 that do not have a penny to their name. They're on Medicaid. And Medicaid. They're getting all the government funding. They live like kings compared to Saddam Hussein, who was a king and was worth billions of dollars. Eating out of tuna cans. He, you know, I even remember like what it means to eating out of tuna can. I remember year, when I was in Eretz Israel, we decided we're going to go on a camping trip. Me and my friend, one, uh, uh, me and my my friend Uri, and we went to uh, we went to Engedi, 
and he had a tent over there. We camped out over there, and we brought food. The problem was, is what do we buy? We bought tuna cans. As a young person, let's just be nice. We bring food, but we don't think anything past that. So we had the tuna can, but we didn't even have a can opener. So we had the food, and we are starving. So what we ended up taking the tuna can and banging in a rock, trying to open it up a little bit, then prying it open. Oh, forget about all we went through just to get a little bit of tuna over there. And finally, we got it out. We were like, oh, delicious tuna. You feel like, you know, we thought like, oh, we haven't eaten in the desert for like six days or something. We've been there for a few hours, but of course, we're starving as the teenagers. So we go, we pry it open, and we're able to finally eat it, banging at our rock over here. And we realize this is, you know, how people live. Saddam Hussein, this is how he lived. Billions that he was sitting on. And what did he have? He had a little bit of a cannon. He was known as the Lord of the Flies, surrounded with flies. He was, when he, when he was captured, he was living in a hole. The hole was about six feet long. He had a small fan, a small light, and a small hole for, for ear. He was living in a situation that was worse than prison. So we see over here, this is a, you know, a person that had billions of dollars. Couldn't enjoy the money. And again, I'm not saying that people that have money should never enjoy the money. Uh, you know, I, I, I hope and I wish and I pray that everybody that has the money should enjoy money and do the right things with the money. But once you rely on that, once you rely on your money, you think that nothing can hurt you. Look how God, you have to realize that there's only one person that we have to rely on, and that's only Avinu Shabashamayim. Hakadosh Baruchu, that's the only person that you could rely on. There was a, a very, very wealthy Jew that did tremendous amount of good for the Jewish community. He, he died at a young age of 67 in 1999. And it, 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 the, there was tremendous media attention when he died because. He had a, one of his houses, he had a security, you know, around the house, and the security wiring caught on fire, and he ended up becoming locked in the restroom that he was using. And he ended up dying from, from asphyxia in the bathroom. He banged on the door, tried to get out, but he couldn't get out. Later, they were able to figure out that one of his nurses, you know, would try to, you know, do something, ended up being in prison for, for I believe it was eight years on, on setting it on fire. But you see some, you know, People that have money, not all, not always does it does it guarantee a life of happiness, of continuity, of of success, of you know just enjoyment, of peacefulness, of menuchas and efes. Sometimes yes, we hope that it's yes, but not always, because we have to realize that once we rely on our money, I'm not saying this person relied on the money. I'm just using it as, as an example. This person was a very good person, did a lot of good for the cholesterol. But we have to realize that once. You know, you, you go and you rely on the money. That's when you're, you're introducing a problem. You'll be like, really? You want to rely on your money? Okay, so let's see what your money can do for you. And then the third thing that the Chavos says is that it's possible that the money will be the down cause of destruction of this person in this world and the next world. Rabbi Rubens, he brings down an example that there was a Jew that, um, you know, post the Holocaust, he, he received... Uh, you know, monetary operations. This is sort of the, you know, Germany game. It gave the, some sort of reimbursement from people that went through the Holocaust. Not that it could give back any iota of a fraction of what they went through. But they gave him a certain amount of money. And it arrived at his account on Erev Pesach. And he had this, always, he always had a strong desire to gamble. But he didn't have the money. He didn't have the opportunity. But Erev Pesach, now all of a sudden he got a big chunk of money in his, uh, you know, in his bank account. And he's thinking about it. Okay, fine. I have $40,000 now. If I go to Atlantic City, if I go to Vegas, I'm able to make that $40,000 to $400,000. Give me two months, I'll turn that into $4 million. Because gamblers, all they think is they're only going to win. It's only going to go up from here. 
I could turn it so much. But he was able, he's like, you know what, it's Erev Pesach, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to gamble. He was able to control himself. Comes the Seder night, the first night of Pesach, and he was took the first cup and he was able to control himself. By the second cup, by the second coast, he couldn't control himself anymore. He, he was beyond himself. He took his kittle, went out, got off, and, and he ran out of the house. He ran to gamble. Unfortunately, what happened was is that he ended up losing all his money. His family was so furious with him that his wife divorced him, and unfortunately, he ended up committing suicide over it. It says Rabbi Ruben says, you know, you never know. Like, maybe if he did not have the money, he would have still been alive. He would still been married. He would still have a family. He would still been going to shul like a regular person. But the money, unfortunately, destroyed him. Says the Chobos of Allah, there are times that sometimes that you have the money. And sometimes the money comes and the money could come and destroy you, not help you. How many cases did I hear about where, where you have people, you know, even recently, people that tell me, people that are in the Shomrim department or, or in Hatzala, where you have people that Baruch Hashem are blessed with, with tremendous amounts of success and wealth, and you think they have a perfect life. And then the showroom have to come because why the child goes and calls the 911 on the parent or the child goes and runs away and steals from the parent and goes and does who knows what. And, you know, we should never, we never want to wish any harm on any of these people. But who knows if the money was the what caused them these problems. Money is great and it should, we should you do the right thing with the money and we should, when we pray for the money, we should hope that we should get it in as a blessing. But sometimes money could come as a big problem. Money could come as a curse. Money could come as, as, Big troubles to the family. So we have to be very careful. Says the Chobos of Lava so that if we go, if we rely on money, any of these three things could happen. Either it could be just, you could lose it to somebody else. Or you won't be able to benefit from it. Or it could be the cause and the reason of your downfall. Now we know, and we spoke about this before, that what happens is when a person goes and doesn't place their trust anymore in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and instead, what do they play? They place, the trust in some, they place their trust in something else, whether it's money, whether it's a person. What does Hashem do? What does God do? God removes His sort of hashgacha, His over, not His oversight, but His, his you know, um, help, if we could say, on the matter. It says, oh, you want to trust the person? You want to trust the money? No problem. Until now, I was helping you. You want to trust Him? Let's see what happens. Rabbi Victor Miller goes and gives beautiful examples for this. And the first example that he gives the, um, in Bereshit chapter 36 verse 20 speaks about the family which Esav married into. It was called Seir HaChori. The Gemara in Shabbat, page 85a, goes and speaks about the name Chori. The, the name which if you, uh, if you switch around the letters, says the Gemara, it spells, Chori spells Reach. Reach means smell. Why was this family called Seir HaChori, meaning like of, of something of the smell? Because they were able to smell the earth. They were able to know, based on the earth, exactly what kind of crops to plant. They knew how much to water it. They, they were able, they were the earth whisperer. They were able to smell the earth and know, you know what? This belongs over there. And nowadays, you see, there is a specialty in it. You go, and you want to plant grass in a certain area. You can't just throw seeds on it. You have to get the soil tested. And you go and you get it tested. Maybe it's too acid, maybe it's too acidic. Maybe it has, you know, it has other sort of chemicals that are problematic in it and it's not productive to grow certain, certain, uh, certain, you know, plants. If you want to go and you want to, you know, plant certain vegetables, you have to have certain, there's, there's a, there's a science behind it. 
Nowadays, the, the people that go and they have farms, they have fields, they use, they, they test these things, and they know the science behind it. But the people of Sayyidah Holi, they were able to go and they were able to just smell the earth and know what type, what they needed to plant in the earth, and what the earth needed, and what the earth, everything they knew just by smelling it. They have a great deal of expertise on the, on the ground. And that's one explanation why they were called Hachori, because Hachori, you turn around the letters, that's Reach, that smells. But the Gemara goes on and gives another example. And another example is Hachori also means to be free. And the Gemara goes on and says that they were free, they were sort of relieved from their property, meaning that they lost everything. So what happened over here? So says Rabbi Vigda Miller, the Chobaz always goes and says that if you put your, your, your trust in something, that what happens, that itself could be taken away. If you feel like you have a still big bank account, I trust my bank account, that can be taken away, just like we've been speaking about it. You think that you're a set. So they had, they, this, this family, they, they had the smell, they had the, they had the science behind everything. They knew everything. They figured, like, it doesn't matter where you put us in the world, we'll be able to plan something, we'll be able to be successful. And really, they were successful. Their grain was the fattest, the grapes were the largest, they had all the best of the best. But they had full confidence in their land. And what happened? They put so much trust into land, says the Gemad, they were freed from the land. They became holy, they became freed from the land, meaning they lost it all. You want to put your trust in the land? You want to put the trust in your science? You want to put the trust in what you think that you know better than everybody else? You know what God says? I'm going to take that away from you. In Germany, you know what the Jews said before World War II? They said, what do we need? Especially reform. What do they say? It says, we don't need the Holy Land. We don't need Jerusalem. They said Berlin is our Jerusalem. Where do they put the faith? Where do they put the trust? They put the trust in Germany. You know what Germany, oh, your God says, yeah, okay, look what happened. Germany sucked the trust out of them. And then sucked the life out of them. And then destroyed them financially, emotionally, intellectually, and physically. And if we look, if we study some of our history, we see that Hashem, God has been teaching our nation this principle again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And God keeps on showing us that He is the ruler and only He is fully in charge. Nobody else is in charge. When you look at, you know, you look, let's look at some examples in our history. When Shmuel Anavi, Shmuel the prophet, when he was commissioned by God to go and to find a king over the Jewish people, he went to the house of Yishai. And Yishai had a lot of sons. So where do you go? Naturally, you go to the oldest. But as we know the story... He went to the oldest. That wasn't the king. He, wa- he wasn't the one who was supposed to be the king. He went, he went to, and who became king? David, the youngest one, the one that they thought the last person that would be the king, that's who the one that, ha- that was the king. The question is, as the Rebbe Miller, why the youngest one? Why the youngest one? And you look at it, Yosef. Look at Yosef. Yosef at that time was the youngest. Granted, Benjamin was alive. He was born at the time, but he was a baby. Yosef was the one that ended up saving the brothers of the entire world, but he was the youngest. Why not Uven? Why not Shimon? Why not Yehuda? There's so many other tribes that could have been the, the savior of the Jewish nation and savior of the entire world. Why the youngest one? You look at Abraham, Abraham Avinu. Abraham, he was going, he was yearning for a son. And you know what? After many years of childlessness, finally God granted him a son, Yishmael. And what did Abraham beg Hashem in Bereshit chapter 17, verse 18? It says, Lu Yishmael Yechia let Yishmael live in your presence. He was fine with Yishmael. He said, let Yishmael be the one that will succeed. But Yishmael did not become the chosen one. He was rejected. Who became the chosen one? Yitzchak, the, the second one that was born. You look at again, Yaakov and Esav. 
Esav was the firstborn. Who was chosen? Yaakov was chosen. You look at Menashe and Ephraim, Yosef's children. Menashe was the firstborn. The second son of Ephraim, he was given the firstborn status. He was given the Bechorah. Where was the Mishkan sat for 369 years? In the territory of Ephraim. Who came of Ephraim? Yeshua, Yeshua ben Nun. There is an unmistakable, unmistakable pattern that's happening throughout our history in the Jewish nation. When you think the firstborn, that is the one who's privileged. That is the one who's supposed to succeed. That is the one who's supposed to lead. But yet what happens? Turn around 180 degrees. It's the one who you least suspected. It's the one that you least anticipated to have success is the one that got the greatest success. And this is not coincidental. There's a great lesson that we have to learn from this. And that is, you should not put trust in your position or in your station in life. As the Pasuk says in Yermiyahu, chapter 17, verse 5, it says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. When you trust in something other than God, it turns out to be the opposite of what you expected. Yaakov, the Bachar, succeed? No, it was not. Why? Because to show you that it was the all in the hands of God. Because this is what the Chavos of Abbas is trying to tell us. That if something happens in your life that is in an unexpected manner, something that's out of the blue, you didn't anticipate it, you didn't expect it. This is a message from God saying that you should only trust only in Hashem and not in the things that you expect to trust into. Hashem manipulates things to come about a certain and most unexpected way. This is to teach us a great lesson, and teaches us the lesson again and again and again and again, that only Hashem is in charge. And really, you know, this class should also go to, to ha- you know, to find, the, you know, what unfortunately what happened in Miami, the collapse of the building, and there are many people that are still, you know, being searched for. We all pray that they really should all be healthy and should all be found in good health. But you see how much we have to trust in Hashem. You're sitting in a building. How, where, why do you ever think that the building would collapse? You trust in the pillars. You trust in the architectural standing of the building. You trust, you trust in the engineering of the building. And what happens in a second? It all could collapse, unfortunately. Because what happens is, is that we cannot trust in anything else other than God. The Yeshua, the salvation comes in the most unexpected way. And let's give a few more examples to show you how powerful, how potent this, this aspect is. When Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses was a baby, his mother and his sister set him afloat on the Nile River. They figured, that, what are we going to do? We can't do anything with him. Let us let him float in the Nile River. Paro was the bitter enemy of the Jewish nation. He was the villain of this story. You had Moses, the hero, and you had Paro, the villain. And Moses, as a baby, was being floated on the water of the Nile River. The last place that you think that, will, the, that the villain would save the hero would, wouldn't even enter your mind. You would think, okay, fine, maybe a Jewish man fishing would find him. Maybe there was a woman that happened to be walking would find the baby floating on the ground, floating on the river. But the last thing that you would think of is that the princess, the daughter of the villain would find the baby, take the baby, and raise her as her own in the palace. You understand the twist in the story? People think Hollywood is so interesting. Twist. You want a good, interesting story? You want a good page-turner? Open up the Holy Bible. Right? The Holy Bible is such a page-turner. Where would you think? You know, you're reading it for the first time. 
and you're like, and you're like, what? Like this is a this is a this is a twist suspense thriller, whatever you want to call it. It went from being, you know, here you have the baby. Who is going to raise the hero, the savior of the Jewish nation, the one who wants to destroy the Jewish nation? The one who wants to go and eradicate all the Jewish baby boys, he is the one who's going to take the only baby boy that he wants to eradicate and be like, come, let me feed you, let me educate you, let me train you, let me put you under my roof. Why did God do that? Let it happen through so many other scenarios. Why did it have to be that it came from the villain of the story? And it was he was raised, Moshe Rabbeinu was raised as an Egyptian. When Yisro's daughter saw Moshe, they said an Egyptian man saved us. Moshe was known as an Ish Mitzri. He spoke Egyptian like an Anjou. He looked like an Egyptian. And even if the Jewish nation knew that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, was in the palace, they wouldn't have put any trust in him. He's a, he was born and raised in the, on the, you know, under Paro, under the villain. Why would I even think about putting any trust in him? And that's why... HaKadosh Baruch Hu did it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, the last place that you're going to look, that's where your salvation is going to come. The, and, and if you think about it in life, the last place that you think you are going to find your shidduch, the last place that you're going to find your parnasa, the last place that you're going to find your house, all of a sudden God puts that in there. Why? God is sending you a message. You know what the message is? Don't trust in the shatran, don't trust in your business partner, don't trust in your college degree, because you trust only in one thing and one thing only, and that is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Let's take this another step further. Look at it, another example in Megillah, in the Gemara Megillah, page 13a. Esther was taken by Ahasuerus. She was the queen. And the first question that they asked them was, what, what are you, Esther? Are you Persian? Are you Iraqi? Are you Iranian? Are you Indian? What are you? Who are you? Esther did not tell. Why did Esther not say... The Gemara goes and answers that the Jewish people should not say, you know what, we have a sister in the royal house. Don't worry about it, we're taken care of. Oh, Haman's going to come in? Yeah, you know who I am? You know who I am? He says, I got a sister in the house. So everyone's turning all bro-like. Yeah, like, you're going to mess with me? You know who my sister is? My sister, she is the queen, all right? And she's going to take care of you, brother. You're going to mess with me? Oh yeah, let's see what happens. The Gemara goes and says, you want to know why Esther didn't say that the Jewish people should never say, oh yeah, you know what? We got a backup plan. We got Esther in the house. <laughs> Come on. Oh, your humble's going to take us. Esther will flick her, flick her hand and his head will be off. But you know why? You know, they didn't even think about that. They didn't even consider that because Esther didn't say where she was from. And when you look at the, the previous queen, Vashti, she was no fan of the Jews. In fact, she was against the Jews. She made the, the she, she had a special like persecution they had against the Jews that the Jews that served or was served specifically on Shabbos to go. She went out of the, she was an anti-Semite of the highest degree. And when the Ahasuerus took a new queen, why would the Jews think about like, why would I even think that I have a savior in the palace? Probably took the same type of queen against the Jews. And that's what we say in Tehillim. One of the, what, there's, there's two Pakim of Tehillim that if you've been a Jew for a long enough time, You've memorized these two Pakim of Tehillim. Right, you know what I'm talking about. There's two chapters of Tehillim that if you've been a Jew for a long enough time, you have memorized these chapters of Tehillim. And if you haven't, you should. The first one is Tehillim chapter 121. The second one is 130. But what is the Tehillim chapter 121? It says, I raise Shema'alot. It goes, and it's like a song of ascent. It says, I look up into, into the mountains. 
And I'm going to think, From where is my salvation is going to come? From where is my salvation is going to come? You don't think, from the house of Ahasuerus, from the king's house, that's where the Jewish people are going to survive? Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. You know, the last place that you'll think that we'll get saved from is from the place that gave the decree to destroy us. Like, why would I think that? Why would I even consider that? We would never even anticipate that. You know why God is doing this again and again and again and again and again? Because Hashem is telling us a message. And the message is, you don't trust in this person, you don't trust in that person. Because how many times throughout history did I show you that when you're in trouble, I'll save you from the me'ayin yavoizli, from where it's going to come, from things that you didn't even anticipate, from things that you didn't even think about. That's how you're going to get your salvation. That's how you're going to find your shidduch. That's how you're going to find your health. That's how you're going to find your parnasa. That's how you're going to get children. From the last place that you could think of. We go a little bit further out in history. There was a Roman emperor, Hadrian, who was, you know, there was a terrible shema, there was a terrible, you know, destruction on the Jewish nation. And things ended up quieting down. But when things quieted down, at that point, there were no Jews left in, in Eretz Yehuda, in the Judea land on, in Eretz Israel. They ended up in Babel or in the Galil. And in the times of Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, the, the Jews in Israel were not in the you know, center by the Jerusalem area, but they were in the northern towns of like Tiporia and Tveria. And it became a very, very big problem, you know, a very, very uh, a scary situation for the Jewish nation because the Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral law, was in very, very grave danger. The written law, we know, is written down, but it's not the main part of the Torah. The majority of the Torah is not the written law, it's the oral law, it's the Torah Shabbat Peh. And we know that we have to guard the Torah to make sure that no errors, no problems ever creep in. And the written law is a little bit easier to do that because it's written. But the Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral law, is very difficult to guard. Because up to a certain point, it wasn't written down. It was just passed on from teacher to student, teacher to student. So if you live in a calm and peaceful existence, one generation can teach the other generation, and there's no problem. The continuity will flow beautifully, without any problems. No issues whatsoever. But what happens when you have persecutions? When you have decrees that you're not allowed to learn Torah? When you have decrees that threaten the Jewish survival, not only spiritually, but also physically? The war of Beitar, which was led by Hadrian, was worse. Historians say that the war that destroyed the Bet HaMikdash. There was a great portion of the Jewish population that were murdered, were killed, were brutally destroyed just for keeping Torah. The Jews that survived were driven out of Yehuda. They were driven out of the uh, you know of certain areas of Israel. And when just when things looked that they could not get any worse, they got worse. And when you think about it, the Romans when they persecuted the Jewish people, it wasn't because of religion. It was they were only interested in money, in the taxes, and that was the Roman. But once the Christians started gaining power. There was a new and intense hatred towards the Jews. This was no longer about money. There was a religious animosity. There was religious fever. There was religious hatred that was going on over here. And things were looking worse and worse for the Jewish nation. Especially when you're looking at the oral law. How are we going to keep this alive? How are we going to be able to, 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 to procure that this continuity will continue? And then comes along Rabbi Huda Nasi. Rabbi Huda Nasi was known as Rabbi. 
And Rabbi Huda Anasi saw that this could not continue. Things looked very, very bleak. And then something very, very unexpected happened. Someone came along and saved the Torah Shabbat And you want to know who saved the Torah Shabbat Who saved the oral law? It was none other than a Roman. None other than the Emperor Antoninus. The Emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. He saved the Torah Shabbat How? Antoninus was a young man. And this story is a fascinating story, but it's for a different time because we don't have the time to dwell into it now. How he and Rabbi Yehuda Nasi became very close. And Antoninus, the Roman emperor, and Rabbi Yehuda Nasi became, they, they became very close. When he became emperor, Antoninus, he went and he built a summer residence in Caesarea and Tiberia near Rabbi, near Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, to beat. And what they did was is they built an underground tunnel that they could be in close contact with each other. And they did care. They would meet at night in secret and they would go. And he was a very, very big supporter of Rebbe. And he made, you know, many decrees giving Rebbe special privileges. And all of a sudden, Rebbe Hudanasi, which was known as Rebbe, he saw that things were looking very, very bright for the Jewish people, and at least for this period of time. So he knew that this is not going to last long. So he, what he did is he called all the sages, all the Jewish people, say all the Jewish sages together, and he sat them down and he wanted to seal the Mishnah. He wanted the seal to write down the oral law. And Hashem, when you think about it, and this is how the oral law came into being, the Mishnah came into being. Hashem, God, could have gone and could have brought the salvation through so many other means. Like, why not when there was a Jewish king? When things were going on, why not did God do it that during that time, that's when the Jewish nation will be able to write down the oral law? Why specifically when it was a terrible time and all of a sudden there was a small, sort of like a cloudy day, when you have all of a sudden the clouds break and there's a small shine of sun? And you're like, oh, beautiful day. For like a short period of time. And that's what the time was where Rabbi Huda Nasi and Antoninus. Like, why did God do that? Says Rabbi Victor Miller, because Ayn Yavozli. From where is my salvation going to come? Says the Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 121, verse 1. Me'ayin means from nowhere, from where. From Ayin means nothing. From nowhere my salvation is going to come. But Api Kabbalah, Ayin also means Hashem. When you have no hope, when you have nowhere to turn, then your heart turns to Hashem. Then your heart turns into God. And once you turn into God, that's where Yavo Izli, that's where my salvation is going to come. Me'ayin, when you have nothing, when there's nothing left, and then all of a sudden, Me'ayin, you turn to Hashem, then Yavo Izli, then your salvation is going to come. And you look at how HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes and puts the salvation in the most unexpected ways. You look at the first two plagues of the ten plagues in the, of, of Egypt. Where were they? Where were they? They were blood and frogs. Both connection with the Nile. The Egyptians were so arrogant that the prosperity of their livelihood, the prosperity, their, 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 their income, where did it come from? It came from the Nile. It says, nobody can harm us. God is going to fight us. We got the Nile. We got irrigation. We don't need rain. You want to throw storms at us? We got, the, we got everything that we have right here. We don't need anything else. The thing that they trusted is the thing that, they got, that God punished them. Because you know what? Because when you trust in something, that's what God is going to punish you with. That's what you think, that's what the trust is? In God we trust or in the dollar we trust? You trust in the dollar, oh, God is going to put you in a situation where you're not going to be able to trust in the dollar and you're only going to be able to trust in God. So maybe it was a genius that what they did is under the dollar saying, God we trust. Because don't trust in the dollar. Don't trust in the, you know... In the $1 bill, in the $10 bill, don't trust in the Benjamins. Trust in one thing and one thing only, and that is God. HaKadosh Baruch And we look at the story of Yosef. 
Yosef was punished for trying to save himself. And Yosef, when, when, when the Torah begins introducing the sort of the climax of Yosef's career, it begins with Miketz. Miketz means at the end. It says at the end of two years. At the end of two years, the Pasuk in Bereshit chapter 41 goes and says Miketz at the end of two years. Why did it say at the end of two years? Why not it say just after two years? So the Medrash goes and says, if it says at the end of two years, Miketz of the two years, that means there has to be an end of something. What was the end of something? It wasn't the end of this prison sentence. What was specifically referring to the end over here? So you know, what? because he wasn't in prison for two years. He was in prison for 12 years. So what's the end? at the end of two years? Because what happened was, is that Yosef spoke to Sarah Mashkin. And he goes over to the guy who pours the, you know, the wine beer, the cup beer of Paro. And Yosef goes up to him, he says, you're going to be restored to your former glory. You're going to be restored to your position. And when you get restored, please don't forget about me, says Yosef. Don't forget about me and remind me to Paro. Get me out of here. Help me out. Help a brother out. Come on. I've been sitting here in the joint with you for 12 years. I've been doing a dime plus. You got to help a brother out. Yosef didn't speak like that. All right. I'm just making it entertaining. So he goes and he put his trust on what? He put his trust in Saramashkin. And that, the Medrash goes and says that this was a, this was a lack, a sign of a lack of bitachon on, on Yosef's part. And therefore he had to wait an additional two years. The Medrash goes and describes Yosef's prison term. It's described as the stone of darkness. And the Gemara Sukkah, page 52a, goes and says that there are seven names of the Yetzirah. There are seven names of the evil inclination. One of them is known as stone. Because you want to know why? That, what, what's, the, what's the aspect of a stone? When a person has something that's called like a, a stony heart, a, a heart of stone, they lack feeling. It, they, they're deprived of any feelings or any thought. When they don't feel, when they don't have any, that's when the yetzahah is the most effective. When you are like sort of numb inside. When you decide, you know what, like, oh, you know, like you're just done with everything. Like everything is just, just like numb with you. Like religion is just like numb with you. Then that is where the yetzahah, that's when the evil inclination is most effective. What happens is, says the message, that Yosef goes and he invested his hopes on a human being. He was hoping that he would find favor with Paro. And Hashem called that a stony heart on Yosef's part. He was trusting on a human being. He wasn't putting his trust in the emotions in the right place. He was sort of solidified the, the, the emotion aspect of where he should have put his trust. And the truth is that Yosef should have trusted in Hashem. But when you think about it, that if we would have been in that position... There would have been nothing wrong if we would have trusted and we would have asked the Sarah Mashkim to go on our behalf to speak to Paro. But Yosef was on a very high level. And when you're on a high level, God looks at every aspect that you do with a magnifying glass. The greatest and the greatest, greatest righteous people. So for us, it wouldn't have been wrong for what Yosef did. But for Yosef, on his level, the, the measure says that it was wrong what he did. It was flawed. And he, that flaw had to be removed. So how was that flawed removed? So Sarah Mashkin was relieved. Yosef goes and says, please, have me in mind. Help a brother out. Get me out of here. Yosef relied on what? Yosef relied on this, on this, uh, on this person. Yosef relied on a person. So how, how did he get purified of that? Very simple answer. One word. Disappointment. Hashem says, you're going to rely on, this, on the cup here? Guess what happened? A month goes by. Yosef's still in prison. 
Six months goes go out by, Yosef's still in prison. A year goes by, Yosef is still in prison. Yosef's like, why didn't the guy remind me? Finally, two years go by. Two years go by, and he's like, you know what? Forget about it. This guy's not saving me. He gave up on the Saramashkin. He gave up on the Kapir. He says, listen, I tried, I, you know, but he's not saving me. Where did he put his reliance on? Where did he put his, his hope, his aspiration to? Forget about the human. Let me rely on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It was at the end of these two years, at the end of him hoping and, and relying on a human being, Mikates, that's where the end was. The end of him relying on a human being, and he relied on Hashem, that's where all of a sudden the salvation came. But I want to speak about it for a few moments on this aspect, and this is where we're going to end off with the stony heart. When you have over here, there's something very, very important when the, when the Gemara speaks about a stony heart. And you know, there are times they have people that they go, and they are not sort of connected to spirituality. They're like, whatever, you know, I'm a teenager. Like, okay, fine, God, yeah, whatever, prayer, you know, like I mumble some words, or they're not really into it. And sometimes it's not only a teenager. Sometimes it's you get older, and you're not that into it. You don't have that connection. You don't have that drive. You don't have that emotional desire. And you're like, okay, like, what's the big deal? So I'm not going to do it. So I'm not going to, you know, dress modestly. So I'm not going to keep Shabbat the way that I, that I need to. So I'm not going to put on tefillin. So I'm not going to learn every time that I need to. You're sort of like, yeah, and you don't feel bad about it. You're like, your heart is like fine. You're like, a, sort of like, you solidify, you know, your heart became like indifferent, so to speak. Indifferent. How scary that is, that if you are in a situation in your life where you're indifferent to religion, that means that the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination has got a hold of you. You're indifferent, that's not good. If you're in a relationship and you're indifferent, that is a problem. If you're in a relationship and you couldn't care less, if your spouse is talking to somebody else in the opposite gender or chatting them and texting them in the middle of the night, and you're like, yeah, whatever, I couldn't care less. That's a problem. When you're indifferent on how your children are going to turn out, that is a big problem. When you're indifferent of whether you're going to close a business deal or not, that could be a problem or it could be really good because you have a lot of money. Whatever it weighs is that you don't want to be indifferent. You don't want to be in a situation when you're indifferent. And if you're indifferent in spirituality, if somebody comes over to you and says, you know, you should dress modest. You know, you should do X, Y, and Z. And you're like, yeah, whatever. You know, okay, fine. Yeah, I'll hear you. You know, talk to the hand. Yeah, keep on talking. Big deal. You know, like I'm not that, you know, it doesn't bother me that much. It doesn't even put a flinch in your mind. That's a big problem. That means you came to a point where you're, Lacking the emotion, the connection to the spirituality. Because when you're doing something wrong, think about it as in a relationship. That if you're in a relationship and you're doing something wrong to your spouse, you're hurting your spouse, and it doesn't bother you, you're in a bad relationship. Between us and God, there is a relationship. If we're doing something wrong, and it doesn't bother us that we're doing something wrong, then we're in a very, very bad place. That situation is known as a stony heart. This is a, this is a heart of Evan. This is a heart of stone. Like you couldn't care less. You couldn't care less. One of the most difficult people that I have to do in the care of world to deal with is people that are indifferent. People that are stony that they couldn't care less. The people that are stony and they couldn't care less, those are the ones that are very difficult to deal with. So if you're in that situation, you have to think about it. Why and how did I get into that that uh, you know problem? Why and how did I get into that situation? So when you go and you think about it, and you're really in that area 
where you're indifferent, there are things that you can do to get out of it. And one of the things is, is that you have to start working very, very, very hard on making yourself connected to, to spirituality. If you become an indifferent and a stony you know, aspect, you have to work very hard to gain that back. One of the ways is through learning. The more that you learn, the more that you're connected. The more that you're connected, the less of the indifference that you're going to have. When you're going and you're learning more and you're listening to lectures and you're trying to grow, you will see as you more and you listen and you learn and you grow, you will become less and less indifferent. The relationship builds up. Think of this as spiritual therapy. Think of this as a connection that you have. You know, you have some people that they go and they pray and they'd be like, I have no connection. I, I, I don't have any connection to it. That's not God's fault. That's not anything else other than our fault. That means that we have to work on, on ourselves. We have to go and try to focus and grow on ourselves. And if we're able to do that, then we're able to get that connection. We're going to be able to get that, that relationship to build up. And this is such an important aspect. Such an important aspect. I could really give a full class just on this topic. And that is that we have to constantly grow. We have to constantly focus on how is our relationship with, our, with God. Do we trust in anything else other than God? Or do we trust only in God? And if we trust in anything else, you want to know where and why that could happen? One possible reason is you have a st- heart of stone. And I'm not saying you have an emotional heart of stone because you'll see a kid that doesn't have any legs and is poor and is begging and he's on diabetes and blah, 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 blah. blah. It's all the worst things and you want to just save the kid. That doesn't mean, that's not what I'm referring to. I'm not referring to an emotional heart. I'm referring to your spiritual heart. If your spiritual heart is of stone, you better wake up. You better wake up because it ain't going away until you make it go away. You have to take your prescriptions. And those prescriptions are Torah. Those prescriptions are learning. And I'll tell you how you know. That if somebody goes and says, hey, by the way, you got to pray better. And you're like, nah, I'm pretty much okay. If somebody goes and says, hey, by the way, you have to be modest. You should really dress modestly. And you're like, you know what, it doesn't really bother me. That should be like a red siren that goes, you know, problem alert, problem alert. If you're not bothered by it, there is a problem. Just like if you're not bothered in a relationship, it's a problem. If you're not bothered in your spiritual relationship, it's a very, very big problem. So with that, let's just give a quick recap and then we'll open up to questions. So the idea that we spoke about today, ideas that we spoke about today is... We don't want to rely not on our money, not on our power, not on our positions, not on our degrees. We rely on no one, nothing, no, no, no being else other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There is really nothing to rely. Because unfortunately, that if we go and rely on, we rely on other people, that's the last thing you want to do. Because that, unfortunately, what God could do is God could take that reliance away. You rely on Germany, ah, Germany is out. You rely on your business, business is out. You rely on X, Y, and Z, it's out. I can't tell you how many situations that you have in, in life where you see that something is working amazing for somebody. And then the entire world turns upside down. The entire world turns upside down. The most terrible tragedies, we whenever, even if you just speak of financial, the most terrible things, how they lose everything. And the last thing that we want is for somebody to lose everything that they have. And then you have the flip side, that a person has nothing. They're going to work and they're barely making ends meet. They're going and their, their relationship is barely... And then some, all they trust in only Hashem. 
They had the faith. And you know what? A year, they didn't see anything. Two years, they didn't see anything. But all of a sudden, five years go by. Six years go by. Seven years go by. And all of a sudden, their entire life turns around. Money starts coming from different angles. Shidduchim start coming from different angles. All of a sudden, they couldn't have a child, they have a child. All of a sudden, their relationship was on the brink of divorce, and all of a sudden, it builds up to something so amazing they never even thought that they could have. You want to know where the power lies in? That's when you say, From where God is my salvation is going to come. I know I can't rely on my, my degree. I know I can't rely on, ex, on my, my business. I can't rely on my my genius philosophies. I can't rely on anything else only on you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And when you say, that's where your salvation is going to come. Your salvation is going to come from from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's where your salvation is going to come. And that's where you're going to get your Yeshua, your salvation. With that, we will open up to some questions. Okay, we have a few uh, things over here. Okay, uh, first one, we're going to read it out loud. I want to share a personal story. How Amuna brought a blessing to my financial stress. I have so many stories to share, hard to choose. Please send me your stories. You never know, maybe I'll make it into the, one of the classes. So please, I was three weeks... I'm reading this straight out from the, from the comments, but I'm not going to mention any names. I was three weeks before my daughter's wedding and was short a nice amount for wedding expenses. And heard about a Kyle getting married with a Kalish getting married within a week. My heart melted. I had no money to give. I'm assuming it was, a, it was an orphan uh, 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 wedding that was supposed to happen and they needed money. And my heart, I wanted, my heart melted. I had no money to give. But decided I gave a little more than $100 left on the credit card. I said to Hashem, this person is getting, getting married first. How much I'll have, I'll give, but I'm sure you're going to help me pay the credit card. Within an hour, okay, I guess she gave the, the $100. Within an hour, I got a deal with that amount and my daughter had all expenses for her wedding covered in a miraculous way. That's amazing. That's beautiful. It's endless. My story after relying fully Hashem, even after giving the last dollar, I always saw Hashem's hands. Money is not mine. And if this minute I don't need, I don't have issue giving away. That's unbelievable. I believe when I need money, Hashem sends. So giving tzedakah is my greatest joy. I truly believe in that. Many people say I'm wrong with this mindset, but I trust in Hashem. First of all, you are 100% correct. So amazing to you, and may HaKadosh Baruch Hu bless you, that you should never have any money problems. You should only have b'shefa b'revach b'hatzlacha, in, in, you know, just an endless amount, adblidai amount of, uh, amount of money, and do the right things uh, with the money. But that is a true thing, where someone has financial hardships, and they feel like they have nowhere else to turn, and they take their last dollars, and they give it to charity, there's a tremendous blessing that comes out to them. Now, I'm not saying that's what you're required to do. Halakhically, you're not required to do that. So don't get, say, okay, well, the rabbi said, I have to go and give my last dollars, so I can't, I can't eat dinner. No, that's not what I'm saying. But, when someone is in a difficult financial situation, the last thing that you think you would do would be to give charity. And the truth is, is that's where you have the most power. And that's where the charity is really worth the most. He goes on, there's another comment. Over here, I had, I had it invested money to have to marry off my kids. Even though I struggle financially, I always knew to marry my kids, I don't have to worry and how wrong I was. When two kids got engaged, I found out there's no money. A shock that was hard to swallow. But Baruch Hashem, I thank Hashem for His challenge that thought, that brought me without, that without Hashem we have nothing. And money comes and goes, but giving we don't give from us. Whatever meant, whatever we're meant to have, we will have. Amazing. So I hope that you are able to marry off all your kids, and if not, Bezal Hashem, you will be able to marry off your kids. Amen. With, with tremendous amount of atzachah. Okay. 
Next. Um, okay, there's a question that's asked regarding the reward and punishment aspect of, of certain to- topics. So yeah, so there is, you know, in life, and let's touch about this briefly. In the in life, we're, we're we come across a bunch of different you know scenarios in our life uh, and what to do, and sometimes we decide on a certain route because we think this is what's going to give us the best. Let's call it bang for our buck. And when we think about it in the religious aspect of it, there is a also an aspect of this will give us the biggest bang for our buck. Either like let's say what we're going to give for charity, where we're going to give to charity, or if we want to do something that's maybe not so kosher. And we start thinking, okay, well, how unkosher is it? You know what? It's not so much of a problem if I do X, Y, and Z. Why? Because like at the end of the day, how much of a problem it is. So what comes into play in, in the way that some people you know, think about it is through reward and punishment. How much reward am I going to get to this verse? How much punishment am I going to get if I, if I fall into uh, this particular sin? So what happens is, is that if somebody goes and they start thinking like this, so how do they start thinking? They think the reward that they're going to do is endless. The punishment is minimal and they're going to justify the way that they want to do. So let's give an example. Let's say somebody goes on vacation. They go on vacation and they say, listen, all year I'm very modest. I keep modesty laws to a high level and it's not a problem. And I get tremendous amount of reward for it. You know how hard it is? I walk down New York. I walk down wherever I live and I work modest where nobody else is about it. You know, like unbelievable reward. But then you go on vacation into a different zip code and all of a sudden you think, okay, you know, like, so what if the skirt is a little bit a few inches above my knees? So what if I go and if I, uh, my, my sleeves go right up a little bit? And they're going to come and be like, you know, really, I heard of a rabbi that never existed that said that you could raise your skirt a little bit higher above your knees, which is not true. But I heard of somebody who said something, who said something, blah, 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 blah. And they go and they justify of what they, of what they feel. Meaning that you want to go to, you know how the saying goes, you hear what you want to hear, you see what you want to see. And how, how true this is. How many times people are in relationships where there is red flags and I tell them, you know, you, you got to run, you know, this is a problem. And they don't. They end up getting married and it ends up causing a problem. Unfortunately, I wish I was wrong, but it ends up causing a problem. Then you have other times where people, there's like, it's not really a problem. I say, no, there's no issue. Really go for it. And they end up breaking it off. And how wrong are they are for, you know, for that also? Why? How does it, how did a person come to that conclusion? Because the way that human beings, the nature of the psychology of human being is, is that they see a certain goal and they want that to be the answer. So they start justifying everything that they want to get that answer. And many times I get these types of phone calls. Be like, is it okay if I invest in X, Y, and Z because it's such a good investment and really it's not such a problem, it's not so illegal, it's not so this, it's not so that. And you can see they're trying to like guide the rabbi into saying this answer. And they'll be like, you know, and, and sometimes they guide the rabbi saying, no, this answer. Really what they do is, and, and many times when people call and ask for advice, they know where to go, but they want that confirmation of somebody else outside the box. And by the way, and many times it's very, very important to do that because you're in uh, you're certain, you're, you're, you're very involved, so it's hard for you to think. So when you, you speak to somebody else who's not involved, has a, a more of a, of a broader viewpoint, a bird's eye viewpoint, they're able to, to be able to Think about it in a more of an unobstructed view, let's call it. So but when someone goes and they, they have a certain answer, they want a certain thing, they'll justify everything from today to tomorrow how it's not wrong. 
This rabbi doesn't know what he's talking about. This rabbi is a fanatic. I have another rabbi that said I could do X, Y, and Z, and it's not a problem at all because I'll give 10% to charity and I'll do a few Hail Marys, wrong religion, whatever it is. I'll do something and I'll figure something out because that's what I want. So when you go and you have a certain desire, and this is it's so true because when you have people that go on vacations, all of a sudden they're not modest. They don't have to be sneezed. Where I have that, I get reward for. But now it's not going to be such a problem. There's no. It's only women, and then the men are really women because they're not really men, and they like the men, and the blah blah blah. And they're not really attracted, and this, and that, 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 and they're from today, and they become the best defenders, the lawyers, the biggest gemara cups that they have to give you every reason that they have that it's really not a problem. And that's where it's the biggest problem when you're going and you're not, you're thinking for yourself. You think that you don't have, you have all the answers. You have all the answers. Where does it start? It starts when you're a teenager. When you're a teenager, you think you have all the answers. And then it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And then by the time you're, you're like 25, you're like, okay, when I was a teenager, I was a silly kid. Like I had no idea. But come on, I'm like 24 and a half. You know, like I could almost rent a car without paying extra money. Like I for sure know what I'm talking about. And then you get to 35 and you're like, you know what? When I was 24, I was an idiot. You know, like, I don't know how they legally gave me a license. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But now I know everything. Like, we don't learn. Like, no matter, like, we don't learn. Like, when we're five, we think we know everything. You know, you speak to a five-year-old, be like, no, I know everything. Like, you know you know how to read? Yeah. They know how to three-letter words, so they know how to read, you know, everything. They know how to do everything. The second that you speak to a second grader, they know how to do math, they don't need to know anything else in, you know, in life. Because every stage that we have in our life, we feel like we know everything. You're finally at 65, you're retired, you'll be like, okay, now I have my life experience. Nonsense! You know nothing still. We still will know nothing until the day that we die. And if you think that you know something, that's when you have a problem. That's when you have an, you know, a, you know, a situation. So really we have to, we have to, um, really put our mind into a, a into a real honest corner, real honest corner. I really think like really where we're holding, everything that I said, everything that we said, everything that we're going to do is that really like where are we holding in our true honesty to ourselves? If we feel that we're honest, then you will go and you will break the world to find the truth, and it will be difficult. But at the end, you're going to have the most happiest, successful life. But if you feel you know better. If you feel that, you know what, I am going to go and I'm going to dress the way I want to dress, I'm going to speak the way I want to speak, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to be successful in my life, and I will have success because that's where I, I will go to college and I'll have a degree, oh, you know, I, again, I wish you best of luck, but that's not where it's going. That's not where it's going. You don't want, you don't want God to go and be like, really? You're going to trust in your college degree? You're going to trust in your mindset. You think that you're going. How many times do I tell people that they go and they're in relationships before they're married, physical relationships, and they think that's not going to affect their marriage? Are you on drugs? Like, are you mentally disabled? Do you have mental deficiencies in your brain that you think that you're going to delve in other relationships that's not going to affect your spouse in the future? Are you crazy? Of course it's going to affect you. You're, any time that a person goes and delves into those types of relationships, you know what happens? Their, their actual marriage, their final marriage, that when they want to give the most, that's going to affect them. That's going to destroy them. Don't be smart. Think outside a little bit. Think outside your little box that you think that you know what's going on. And learn from other people's mistakes. Learn from what people did and don't fall into the problems that other people fell into. Okay, next question. Went a little bit on the tangent over there. 
We know from history, and it's brought down, that the Jews will be persecuted in each generation. Yep, we sing it on Pesach night. And that relatively good times for the Jews, such as nowadays, don't last long. When we're flourishing both in materialistic and spiritual ways, it won't last. What should our perspective be of life in America, where we seem to be doing very well? Yes, we're here because Hashem wants us to be here. And we shouldn't, and we shouldn't, but our trust in this country, but there's, oh, we shouldn't trust in our country, but there's still that nagging feeling that times, that times will get bad. So that's a great question. And the truth is, this question, if you think I went on a tangent in the last, in the last topic, I could go in such a tangent in this one, but I'm not because it's getting late. But I, I do want to, want to touch a little bit about it. Cause you look at it and be like, look how amazing it is in America. Look how great. We have the freedom of religion. We're able to do so much. And it really looks like it's good. But I have to tell you something, that from the spiritual aspect, it's not as good as it looks. It's really not as good as it looks. It's actually very, very scary. Now things are great. Things look great. You have the ability to do everything. Jews have the freedom of religion, the freedom to do whatever it is they want. And, and that's amazing. It really is amazing. But at the same point in time, it's a spiritually destructive you have Jews right now that what happens? So they get, invo- they get involved in different things because they're able to get involved. They're able to go, when was, you know, people are going to Broadway, people are going to musicals, people are going to theaters, people are going and involving in, in the non-Jewish world like never before. People become so involved in it, you think that everything is great. Everything, the non-Jews are our friends. And then what happens is, they, yeah, it looks like they're our friends. The greatest assimilation rate is now. It looks like it's great, but really what happens is there's a spiritual holocaust that's going on now. There is a spiritual destruction that's going on now because everything looks great. Yes, come. Come to our theaters. Come to our concerts. Oh, how fortunate it is when you have Jewish people going to non-Jewish concerts, sitting over there listening to this thing, dancing, unfortunately, with the destruction that it causes. It looks like it's great. Yes, and it could be great, but at the same point in time, it could be so destructive. So yes, we are in a great time throughout our history. But at the same point in time, it's spiritually, it's so dangerous where we are standing. It's so dangerous. You have a phone. You have the, the contacts of the world on your phone. If it's not kosher and it's not blocked and if it's, you don't have the, the, you know, the proper you know, precautions on your phone, you have the world. The fingertips, is, the, you, uh, is, uh, the world is on your fingertips. You can really do anything. You could f- grow yourself to listen to lectures one hour after another or you could destroy yourself one minute after another, by looking at the worst things, getting involved in the worst things. How many people go and they decide that they listen to one atheistic lecture and they decide now they're atheists because they know they think they know something. They know nothing. They know nothing, but they get sucked into the, all this nonsense and they fall into, into prey to who knows what. So yes, we are in great times. But that great times comes with great, great risk and great responsibility of where we're holding. So... Yes, we hope that uh, it continues, that we have the freedom to do whatever it is that we need to do religiously. But at the same point in time, don't let this fool us. That we think that we're, go- we're, we're in a very, very scary place. And that's why, in my personal opinion, I think that Kirov nowadays needs to be pushed a thousandfold. Dao needs to be pushed a thousandfold. Yes, Baruch Hashem, we have people learning in yeshivas, that's great. But what about all our brothers and sisters that are not connected to that? we got to push... Torah in the Kirov world a thousandfold because if not, who knows what's going to happen in the future. Okay, next question. Okay, looks like this one is the last one that we have. You asked me for another story. Okay, we got another story over here. This past Rosh Hashanah, right after the daughter's wedding, I was supposed to get $500 back from the wedding hall 
and Erev Rosh Hashanah, I heard somebody was marrying off at the same hall that people were collecting for also. On Rosh Hashanah, I was having a conversation with my husband that we needed Tzchusim. And if we could donate this 500 to- towards another wedding, maybe it will bring us Tzchusim. So Baruch Hashanah, my husband agreed. I'll, I called the hall and she put towards the other wedding the $500. A few hours later, still on Rosh Hashanah, my daughter was walking in the kitchen and found on my floor my diamond ring, my ring that was lost over a week ago, searched all over for it, which Baruch Hashem, I thank Hashem, it's only a ring. And a few hours after a promised donation, found a ring that's worth a few 500s <laughs> on the kitchen floor that was vacuumed and washed a few times. Amazing. I have so many stories that I see, that is, that I see Hashem's hand. I lived and breathed with Hashem. Yes, I fell many times, but those times that I fall, I cry out stronger and He should hold on to me and help me lift Lift and help me feel his love and his closeness. One thing I learned, I learned, the more I cry out, the more accepting I am with everything that goes around my life. I'm working and davening to reach the highest level of Amuna, that everything around me is a miracle, which is not easy. That's unbelievable. So not only for you, but for all of us, we should all strive to, te- to reach that type of level and that type of, of you know, thought process. Really, that is the goal. Really to rely on nothing else other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And with that, that was a final question, final comment. And with that, we thank everybody for joining us. We bless everybody for a tremendous amount of success, financially, emotionally, intellectually, of course, spiritually, with endless success. And if God blessed you with certain success, may HaKadosh Baruch Hu be able to go and keep that for you. But let us learn from one thing, at least from this class, and to realize that we have nothing other to rely on. Only Allah, Allah, Vinu, Shabbat Shemayim. Thank you all for coming, thank you all for listening, and thank you all for joining. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.